right, so we are going to be in Mark chapter 15 tonight. So if you have your Bible, pull that thing out so you can follow along with me. We're going to be in Mark chapter 15, uh, looking uh, at verses 22 through, uh, I believe, verse 39. So 22 through 39 is where we're going to be tonight. Um, As we approach this passage, uh, a couple of reminders. We're looking at the crucifixion of Jesus. It won't be my goal to make it uh, as gruesome as possible. I want to follow the text as close as possible uh, and let God's Word speak for itself. And so hopefully that's what we'll have this evening as we look at this. Uh, The other thing I want to do is uh, just to set the context a little bit, to give you just a little bit of a reminder uh, of what's going on here. Uh, With the Gospel of Luke, we're receiving the Apostle Peter's view of this passage. And so we're seeing this from Peter's viewpoint. So if you imagine maybe 20, 30 years later, uh, Peter uh, is trying to remember all of these events. He's trying to pass them on to Mark so that they can be written down. Uh, This is Peter's recollection of this. And so I think that'll help us uh, have a a little bit of a a different view of this to remind ourselves that this is an eyewitness account. Uh, This is the account of an apostle who had been with Jesus for years. Uh, This was his friend he was watching die on the cross here. Uh, This was somebody that he loved, that he cared for. And then after that death, when that resurrection occurred, uh, Peter then rededicates his life to the resurrected Jesus Christ. And he gives the rest of his life specifically to uh, surrendering it and serving uh, this resurrected Savior. So uh, let's look now uh, at the passage here that we have before us. Uh, We'll pick it up in verse 22, but uh, just know before this, uh, Jesus has gone through a number of different trials. He's been denied by uh, Peter, who's writing this or who's giving this story to us. Uh, He's been mocked by the soldiers. He's been Uh, stripped and beaten and just punished and tortured in so many different ways uh, to the point where in verse 21 it tells us uh, that he wasn't even able to carry his own cross, uh, that they had to, as it says there in verse 21, they pressed into service a passerby uh, coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. The wording of that is uh, interesting to me for a couple of reasons. I I like the idea that it tells us Uh, Simon of Cyrene, and then it also mentions uh, who his kids were. Uh, It's almost as if the author is saying, hey, if if you want to check out the details of this, if you want to see if this is true, Alexander and Rufus, at the time of this writing, were still around. You can just go talk to them. This is how how truthful this is. This is an eyewitness account. This isn't something uh, that was maybe made up for history. This is an eyewitness account of what happened. Uh, The other thing I think is cool about this, uh, when it says that uh, Simon was pressed into service. It reminds me of Jesus teaching uh, in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, verse 41, where he says something along the lines as if they ask you to go one mile, if they force you to go one mile, go two. And so you see kind of played out here uh, in Simon's life, a very visual example of that uh, leading to the cross of Jesus. But anyway, the, the point that we want to pick it up here uh, now is in uh, verse 22. It says, then they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. It was the third hour when they crucified him. 
the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And he was numbered with transgressors. Those passing by were hurling abuse uh, at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha! You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. Uh, So the description of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is uh, not very detailed in the actual physical things that happened. Not a lot of time is spent on describing the physical things that happened to Jesus. Uh, There's several of those things we can find, maybe a few of them in other Gospels, but just uh, from history and understanding how the process of crucifixion works, it would have been brutal. It would have been brutal uh, for a number of reasons. The, The first being the beating that Jesus had already taken. He had already taken this this horrible abuse. He'd already been beaten. He'd already been uh, whacked on the head. And uh, they had uh, essentially, if you can imagine them, just throwing him down and kicking him and beating him and spitting on him. Uh, All the things that they had done. It said in verse 19 that they had kept beating him in the head with a reed. And so over and over and over. uh, Again, he's already uh, exhausted from the long night of trials. And he had been on multiple occasions assaulted throughout this, uh, beaten in different ways. And so now when he gets to the cross... What's going to happen to him uh, is so horrific uh, that I believe that's one of the reasons Peter doesn't even mention it. Peter doesn't go into the details of what was physically going on with Jesus. Uh, Number one, because I think it would be impossible to describe just how bad it was. But number two, because this is a description of his friend's death. I don't know if you've ever been there when somebody died, but uh, one of the uh, things that happens when you're a pastor is you have opportunity to see uh, people die. And for me, it's happened on a number of occasions. And I've been there kind of in those last moments as they breathe their last breath. Uh, and you really uh, get a new sense of what life and what death is and the way that those things feel when they actually happen. And so I could see Peter not wanting to go into detail. Uh, I do want to give us just a little detail, not to gross us out or anything like that, but just to remind us of what he went through, uh, that when they got him to the place of the cross, uh, that they took a, a hammer and nails and they nailed through his wrist bones there. They drove a nail through there and nailed him to a cross. And then they drove through his ankle bones, another a nail that uh, stuck him to the cross at the bottom. And then they lift that cross up into the air. And so now at this point, he's supporting himself on these three nails. And so his feet nailed together, his hands nailed against the cross. This is what's actually supporting him and holding him up. And if you can imagine, even now as I'm holding my arms up, my arms are starting to get a little tired. The blood is beginning to to drop out of my arms and it's getting harder and harder for my heart now to pump to the all the way out to the extremities of my body. Well, imagine this now, because I'm standing up, it's easy for me to breathe. But imagine if you were slightly pulled down by the weight of your body to eventually it got to the point where it was harder and harder for your heart to pump the blood, harder and harder for your lungs to take in a breath. And in fact, uh, they tell us that when you're on the cross, that you actually have to push up against those nails to take a breath. 
And then you would sink back down again until you couldn't take it anymore. And you'd push back up to take a breath. That's what it was like for him on the cross. And imagine now, as he's pushing up, every time he pushes up, his back has been filleted open at this point as they tortured and beat him. It says they uh, beat him uh, with these whips on these reeds on his back and they laid his back open. So now he's taken his bloody and open back and he's pushing it up and down against that, uh, against that, that, that wooden cross. Every time he takes a breath, the intense pain. Uh, Peter doesn't go into the details of that. Uh, it does tell us in verse 22 uh, that all of this happened at a place called Golgotha which is translated place of the skull. You might not know this, but in the Latin translation of the New Testament, that word Golgotha is actually the word Calvary. It's where we get the name of our church, Calvary Chapel. Uh, to translate Golgotha into English, we're told here it's, it's translated the place of a skull. Uh, there's actually a Calvary Chapel up in Montana, and they just call themselves Skull Church. And so uh, kind of a brutal name for a church, it might seem, uh, but it really is a, just a literal telling of what this word Golgotha means. And if you are actually to go to that place, uh, you can see uh, that just the way the side of the mountain or the side of that hillside is formed, it just looks like a skull. It's called the place of the skull. Uh, But anyway, at the place of the skull in verse 23, then it says, uh, they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. This wine was used uh, to numb the pain. Uh, It's something that uh, many uh, Jewish women Uh, thought was a mercy to the people that were dying. And so just as a a moment of mercy, when they would see people on the cross, they would try to give them this this concoction of wine mixed with myrrh, which is like a uh, 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 what would you call that? It's it's, uh, something that uh, helps kind of numb the pain so they don't have to suffer through. As I was describing what was happening on the cross, just think now, uh, not having to suffer through that as much because this Um, wine mixed with myrrh is there. It actually, I think, probably goes back to the book of Proverbs. I think these ladies were probably looking at the book of Proverbs. They see in verse uh, 30, I'm sorry, chapter 31, verse uh, 7, it says, uh, well, we'll start in verse 6, give strong drink to him who is perishing and wine to him whose life is bitter. Let him drink and forget his poverty. Remember his trouble no more. And so there's just this idea that just as a a mercy, a a moment of love, these women are trying to dull the pain of those who are dying on the cross. Uh, In this case, though, Jesus turns that down. Uh, Our Savior wanted to feel the full pain. He wanted to feel the fullness of the cross. He wanted to feel all of the suffering that went into that uh, so that this wouldn't be uh, some partial sacrifice. This was a real deal sacrifice. Uh, He's taking on all the pain. And so verse 24 just very simply says again that they crucified him, uh, but it then goes to describe just the inhumanity that's happening around him. It says, first of all, that they divided up his garments among themselves casting lots to decide what each man should take. So imagine now, as you're hanging and dying on the cross, the people around you are basically playing dice, casting lots to see who gets your clothing, to see who gets your items, not even waiting until after you're dead, but just doing it right there. We also see uh, that there is uh, this uh, inscription uh, above his head 
the king of the Jews. Well, remember, they've been mocking him about this. They had taken a crown of thorns and placed it on his head. And so you imagine those thorns had been beaten into his skin there. They had been pushed into his his uh, skull. And you just think about any time you've had just even a little cut on your skull and how much that bleeds. Well, imagine that now. And here they are mocking him even more with this inscription above his head, the king of the Jews. This is something the Jews were not happy about, by the way. They had asked uh, that that would be removed. But uh, what they were told is what is written is written. In other words, hey, I'm not messing with it. It's king of the Jews. That's what it's going to say above his head. Well, in verse 27, it tells us also uh, that there were two robbers who were crucified with him. And so we recognize this happening as well. There's this interesting mention there. It was a fulfillment of Scripture. Uh, we'll look at that more in depth when we uh, get kind of to verse 34. Uh, but a lot of the things you're seeing in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 15 uh, are going to be connected to a prophetic psalm, Psalm 22. Uh, so we'll see that connection as we go forward. Uh, but the part that I wanted to focus on here uh, is in verse 29. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha, huh, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down for the cross, from the cross. I, in the same way, the chief priests also along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. So here we have three groups of people now. Uh, they're, they're abusing him verbally. They're hurling abuse at him. They're mocking him. They're insulting him. We have these three different groups of people. The first is the passerbys. Well, just people that happen to be passing by and they happen to recognize who he is, uh, apparently by the things that they're saying about him. But it says they're, they're wagging their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. They're taking his words, his promised words that he would be restored in three days, that he could destroy the temple in three days and rebuild it. Of course, he was talking about his body. He was talking prophetically about his resurrection. Uh, but these people who had heard of this teaching of Jesus as they walk by and see him being crucified there, they're mocking him. The heartlessness that goes into that to see somebody who's being put to death and really being put to death unrighteously. Uh, yet to mock them like this, just the passerbys. Uh, the second group is the most offensive, I think. In verse 31, it says, in the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, these are the religious leaders, the chief priests, the most religious people in the nation of Israel. They are to be God-appointed people to represent God and the sacrifices and the law before the people of Israel. They're supposed to show the heart of God more than anybody else. And they're the ones that then stand before God uh, to represent the heart of the people before God. And so we have these people that are supposed to be the most religious people. And I can just say this, if the most religious people in your country are mocking somebody who is dying. There's problems with your religious system. I would say it's something that we as Christians need to watch ourselves in. I find it easy 
for myself personally, I have a very sarcastic uh, mind. I've always turned to sarcasm for humor and jokes and things like that. But it's very easy to get in kind of this mocking tone. And we kind of see this uh, played out by uh, different people who think it's okay to mock somebody they disagree with, mock other religions, to, to mock political people, to mock their neighbor, or to mock their enemies, or to mock other religious views or other doctrinal statements. Now, that mocking is not the heart of God. It's the exact opposite of the heart of God. Now, God would clearly define what is true and what is not true, but he loves even those who have false truth. He wouldn't mock them. He would instruct them. He would admonish them. And he certainly wouldn't, at the point of somebody's death, begin to mock them. These chief priests are offensive to me because of their hypocrisy. And we've seen this uh, played out throughout the last week of the life of Jesus, even yesterday as we were looking at the devotional that I had sent out, uh, that, that idea of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Uh, it was their job to try to uh, bear false witness against Jesus, to entrap him in his words. Of course, it didn't work out. Jesus amazed them all with his teaching. Uh, but this idea that at the heart of their religion is this uh, somehow this ability to free themselves for the purpose of mockery, and really, even in this case, the purpose not just of mockery, but the purpose of murder. And so they're mocking him. Uh, the way they are mocking is this. They say, he saved others. He cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Uh, the reality was, though, that they weren't going to believe no matter what Jesus did. He had consistently shown himself to be the cross with many signs and wonders, even resurrecting Lazarus from the dead, which I'm assuming is, is what they mean there in verse 31. He saved others. He cannot save himself. He, he saved Lazarus from death. He brought him from death back to life. But I'm sure they tried to play it out in their heads and say, okay, well, that's not physically possible. So maybe this was all a setup. Maybe this was all a trick. Maybe Lazarus never really died. You know, they tried to, to think through these things in ways that they can uh, put them out of their minds so they don't have to deal with the reality that Jesus is, in fact, their Messiah. He is, in fact, their King. And so we see that they're mocking him in this way. And they say this at the end so that we may see and believe, but they, they won't see because they haven't been willing to see up to this point. And they won't believe because they haven't been willing to believe up to this point as he healed people, as he raised people from the dead, as he did things like walk on the water, as he fed the multitudes. None of these things mattered to them. And there's another reality to this that I think we have to keep in mind. Jesus didn't save himself from death because it was a greater desire for him to save us from our destiny. If he had saved himself, none of us would be saved. I mean, this is, a, this is a powerful moment for Jesus. As they're mocking him, he has to determine in his mind not to use all of his divine power to come off of that cross. He has to rely 100% on his humanity. He has to allow himself to slowly die. Now notice here the third group who's mocking him. 
uh, this group to me is silly. Those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. This is just bad. I mean, the chief priest was offensive, but this is just bad. Even in your own death, you still find it in your heart to mock others. This really, to me, shows the depravity of man when we look at the passers-by, the religious leaders, those who are crucified. It's a reminder to me that all of us have within our heart depravity. It's just this desire to sin. Just this inability to do the right thing sometimes. It's a reminder to me that we need a Savior to save us from the effects of our sins, but also from the actual action of sin. We needed a Savior. We needed somebody to die on that cross in our place. Well, because of this text here, we understand uh, that everything that we're seeing up until this point, this abuse, this mockery, these insults, uh, this has gone on now, it says, for three hours. When we look at verse 33, when the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. And so uh, we have kind of this cool thing. First of all, let me explain the way that time is working here in this passage. Uh, this, the Gospel of Mark, is written to a Jewish reader, and so it's using the Jewish uh, understanding of time. So for them, the third hour, the first hour would be 6 a.m., so the third hour, when all of this started, Jesus was crucified at 9 a.m. So he's been on the cross now, uh, doing all the things I described, suffering in that way, while he's being insulted in the midst of all this, three hours. So from 9 a.m. now until noon. And then starting at 9 a.m., it says, darkness covers the land for three hours. Now, some people would like to say that that darkness never actually happened. That's not something that really occurred. Uh, I'm going to give you uh, two just, I think, uh, very simple apologetics of why I believe this is a true thing that happened. Uh, the first is it's recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. These Gospels were written shortly after these events. So people who were alive during that time could have refuted it. You would see that all the people who would read this would go, wait a second, I was alive, I was there, it didn't go dark. But apparently that doesn't happen. We have no record of people refuting this teaching. Uh, the next thing that I would point out as we look at the sixth hour uh, is this, that when that darkness hit the land, even authors who weren't religious, who didn't know about all of this, wrote about this happening. There's actually three historians that we can look at, Thallus, Phlegon, and Africanus, and they write about this as well, even to the point of saying that it was so dark that you could actually see stars, if you could imagine. So this isn't even like a typical eclipse. This is like, it gets so dark that it's like night, and you can see the stars. And these are authors who are not Christians writing after this time, writing about the history of this time period, uh, Africanus even says uh, it's, it's kind of a, a weird thing to think that this is some sort of eclipse. This is something so much more. But anyway, uh, you guys can do some more research on that. But now imagine this, this scene as they've been insulting him and mocking him and abusing him, hurling abuse at him as he's dying on the cross. And then all of a sudden darkness enters the land. And it's, it's just this one verse for us. 
to describe the next three hours. It's just three hours of darkness. And I imagine during those three hours, the attention of the people probably turned from the cross to what is going on. What is this cosmic event that's happening right now while Jesus hangs on the cross? And then we get to verse 34. It's now the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachini, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, he's, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave him a drink, saying, uh, Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way that he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. And so now we have the ninth hour and Jesus cries out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachina, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, This, for some people, is a moment of confusion. They're thinking uh, that Jesus is maybe changing his mind here, Uh, but he's not. Uh, What Jesus is doing here, and this is, I think, pretty interesting, uh, if you want to think of it in these terms, Jesus is singing, or at the very least, quoting a psalm. Uh, This is Psalm 22. I'm going to turn there briefly and... uh, just kind of point out some of the interesting connections here. If you were to look at Psalm 22 and see how this all lines up here with what we're looking at in the Gospel of Mark, uh, right there in verse 1, this is the direct quote, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So in this moment, whether he's connecting to prophecy or just connecting with this psalm that he already knows, Jesus looks at the scene around him And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22, verse 1. But if you keep looking at that psalm and reading on, uh, you would jump to verse 7, for instance, where he says, all who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip and wag their heads saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in them. Uh, You can see how Jesus would have made this connection as he's hanging on the cross and people are, in fact, wagging their heads at him and they're telling him to save himself. He could see that connection as people were mocking him. We jump to verse uh, 13. They opened wide their mouth at me as a ravening and roaring lion. So again, looking at that mocking. Verse 14 talks about his bones being out of joint. Again, if you could imagine as he's hanging there on the cross and all of his weight being bore by his shoulders there. You can imagine even uh, some dislocation of his bones. In verse 16, about halfway through that verse towards the end there, it says, They pierced my hands and feet. So Jesus either connecting to a psalm that he knew or pointing us to a prophecy. Verse 17, they look, they stare at me. Verse 18, we saw this happen as well. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. You can just see how all of these things would have connected. 
whether they were intended to be prophetic or whether it was just Jesus connecting to a psalm that he knew. Uh, in, in either way, you can see why he would cry out in this moment, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When well, verse 37 When Jesus utters a loud cry and breathes his last breath, another miraculous event happens. The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Uh, If you could imagine tearing something, if you were to take a piece of paper and just tear it from the top to the bottom. This is an atypical thing, right? To think of a veil a giant piece of cloth that's hanging over a doorway or over an entrance uh, that was used to block people's view of the Holy of Holies, uh, the place where uh, the Ark of the Covenant was supposed to be, the place where the priest would meet with God. Now, I want you to imagine what's been happening historically up to this point. The Ark of the Covenant has actually been lost to history at that time. And so in this beautiful temple that has been built there, after that time of the Babylonian captivity, and then again with Herod's beautiful temple, there was actually no Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. There was no, it was called the mercy seat or the seat of propitiation, uh, the place to satisfy God's wrath against his people. And once a year, the high priest would go in there and it was said that he would, he would meet with God. Well, for hundreds of years, There was no mercy seat. There was no Ark of the Covenant. And now imagine as Jesus is dying and that veil is torn, it's now visible that it was empty, that the temple itself was an empty, empty sacrifices were empty up until that point. But also imagine this, that through Jesus Christ, we now have access to the throne room of God. See, that whole temple was built. It was designed to be a picture of the throne room of heaven. And when that veil is torn and it exposes the throne room of the temple, it's also exposing this reality that now through Jesus Christ, we have access to heaven. Kind of a powerful moment there, that torn veil in the temple. And then it closes here in verse 39, the centurion This Roman soldier standing by is right in front of Jesus. He sees him breathe his last, and he starts to just do the math in his head. Uh, You can imagine that he had probably heard the stories of what Jesus had done. Uh, You could probably imagine that he had uh, heard of some of the miraculous things of Jesus. And then you could probably imagine that he had seen crucifixions before, but he sees how this one is different. He sees this mockery of the religious leaders. He sees the darkness for three hours. And then he finally sees Jesus breathe his last. And it all comes out in his head to this moment in verse 39 where this centurion believes. And he just said, truly, this man was the son of God. A powerful moment the death of Jesus Christ, where this guy gets it. He recognizes Jesus to be 
the Son of God. Now, I like to point out every time I see the phrase Son of God, that is that Jesus could only be the Son of God if he, in fact, was God. Uh, What I mean by that is uh, the Son of a human will always be human. The Son of a dog will always be a dog. The Son of a cow will always be a cow. And the Son of God will always be God. Jesus was fully God. There's a reality to that. But I also, in these moments, want to point out that this death on the cross wasn't just this horrific event that we look back in history, that there was actually something that was being accomplished here. Paul's going to describe this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says this, Christ died for our sins. That's why he died. He died for our sins. A very clear explanation, a very clear telling that the death of Jesus Christ happened for a purpose. And even this we see, that it was while we were yet sinners that Christ died for us. This is even more powerful for me. Jesus didn't wait for me to clean up my act to pay the price for my sins. No, when he died, he was dying for my sins He was cleaning up my act for me. That's what's being accomplished here. Uh, We're told that when Jesus died, that all the sins were placed on him and they were put to death with him. And then whoever would like to have his perfect life applied to their life, all they would have to do is ask. The sins of the world placed on him being put to death. Now those sins have been paid for. And anybody then can come receive that payment for themselves just by going to Christ and asking. There's a couple of other things that we see accomplished here. I think one of the clearest things that we have to recognize was accomplished at the cross is just a reminder that God loves us. You know, John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. The cross of Jesus Christ is a reminder that God loves us. Another thing that happens at the cross, we're told that this is our redemption or our ransom would be the phrase. In fact, in Mark chapter 10, as Jesus describes what's about to happen to him, in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, he says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life a ransom for many. It's this idea that he's buying our lives with his life. And so if you can imagine that we've been in slavery, or we've been in bondage, we've been kidnapped, for instance, by sin, by Satan. Jesus gives his life to pay the ransom for our life, to get us out of that bondage, to get us out of that slavery, to get us out of that position of being kidnapped or stolen away by the things of Satan or by our own sins. We've been paid for by him. The other thing we're told happens at the cross is reconciliation to God. Uh, Romans 5, I'll read this one to you. Romans chapter 5 in verses 10 and 11. says, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God, Through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, 
through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Uh, In the death of Jesus Christ, we are reconciled to God. We were separated from God because of our sins, but in the death of Jesus Christ, we're now reconciled. Reconciliation speaks of a restored relationship that the all-knowing creator God who created all of us seeks to be in relationship with us. At the cross, he did the work to restore our relationship so that you and I now can have an actual relationship with God where there's nothing between us. God doesn't look at us every time he sees us and go, oh, I can't believe all that man's sin. No, in fact, it's the opposite. We're told in Scripture that the all-knowing God has chosen to remember our sins no more, not because he's forgetful, but because from his perspective, he can look at the work that was done on the cross and he says, my son Jesus Christ paid for those sins. They're paid in full. There's no longer any record or any account of those sins. He sees us as completely forgiven, so there's no longer any reason for us to have a broken relationship with God. It's something that I believe is very simply accomplished that anybody who's willing to recognize that they have broken relationship with God, that they've gone their own way, done their own thing, they've been involved in their own sinful choices, can be restored and reconciled to him by a simple confession and belief. Again, Romans 10.9, my favorite verse, it says that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord means he's the boss. So you're confessing with your mouth this thing that's already true, Jesus is the boss. From now on, I'm going to live this truth. I'm confessing it's true now with my mouth. Jesus is Lord. He's the boss. That's the first part. The second part, believe in your heart God raised him from the dead. We'll look at the resurrection on Sunday. Uh, But the reality of this, uh, everybody understands what we celebrate as Christians. The reason we meet on every Sunday is to celebrate that our Savior who died on the cross three days later would be resurrected to a new life. And so for us, we have to believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. And I'll tell you the power of him being raised from the dead. It says that he was the firstborn among the dead. Uh, In other words, the same God who has the power to resurrect Jesus from the dead has promised and has the power to resurrect us from the dead to eternal life that we could live eternally with him in heaven. And then it says at the end of that verse, if you confess, if you believe, you will be saved. Saved from what? Well, this is what Jesus was doing on the cross. This is why they asked that question. He saved others. He cannot save himself. No, he couldn't save himself. Because if he had saved himself, none of us would be saved from our sins. None of us would be saved from our broken relationship with God. All of us would be in a position where we would be destined for hell. Uh, Apart from the cross of Jesus Christ, Earth is as close as we would ever get to heaven. But because of the cross of Jesus Christ, those of us who are believers, I want you to understand this. Earth is as far as we will ever get from heaven. And it's as close as we'll ever get to hell. We have for us, because of the work of Jesus Christ, a promised salvation, a destiny of a reconciled relationship with God for all eternity. And that's why we as Christians, every year, 
try to remember the death of Jesus Christ. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, as we remember your Son, Jesus Christ, today, as we think through the work that he did on the cross, Lord, I pray that you would help it be more true for us. Lord, as we get to know more and more what he did for us and what it must have taken for him to live in his humanity in spite of his divinity. Lord, would you help us see just how much you and just how much he loved us. Father, as we grow in that love, that we would begin to experience more and more of a true relationship with you that we would be blessed and honored to be called friends of God. Father, that we would follow you as our Lord more closely. Lord, would you be preparing our hearts then to celebrate this, this Sunday as we, we look at the resurrection of your Son. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved.